Welcome to the Share Life Podcast with Jason Scott Montoya, where we explore stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Welcome to another episode of the Share Life Podcast. Today, I'm here with Tracy Rhodes. Tracy, say hello. Hi. Good morning here. (laughs) Good morning. Good day. Um, Tracy is an author, a Bible teacher, writer, listener, and follower of Jesus who deeply cares about church unity, church history, and everyone reading God's word. She's also a engager on the Twitter platform, tweeting away. Uh, That's how we met. Um, But she does it with grace and elegance. Um, She also lives with her family outside of the Grand Rapids. Um, She's been on the podcast before uh, with a discussion that we had about the final moments of Jesus on the cross. So you can definitely check that out. In this conversation, we're discussing her latest book, Shaky Ground, What to Do After the Bottom Drops Out, which is written for Christians um, and the spiritually curious um, who who wonder, wonder about a life built on Christ's solid ground can make a real difference in our own lives, in our communities and churches. So Tracy, thank you for having us here. I will just make one quick comment. So my full name is Jason Scott Montoya. And Scott, my middle name means wanderer, and uh, Jason means healer. So I'm a wandering healer. <laughs> Good, it's a fine name. <laughs> but anyways, tell us about you, who you are, and um, uh, what this, where this book came from. Yeah. Well, first of all, Jason, thanks again for um, having me on that panel. I, I think it was was it a year ago. It seems like Probably it was a little almost over a year. A year ago. Yeah. Yeah, though I st- I still think of those two guys often. They were way smart. Yeah, James and uh, um, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was happy to be a part of that. Um, this particular book, you know, it, you always try to look back and point to a time that it um, that a book project began, which is a very futile task. Um, I, I would say even as I was writing my first book, this book was in development. Um, one of the first questions you're always asked is, are they related? Is it a sequel? You know, that that kind of thing. And my answer to, to that would be yes. My first book, Not All Who Wander Spiritually Are Lost, really took a look at my church story from the beginning of my life um, up, up to current day. And the wandering part was my discovery that the small country church where I grew up was such a small part of the greater Christianity, Christianity across time, Christianity, certainly in the Bible, um, New Testament in particular, and then around the world as well. And what I have discovered in my faith journey is that my faith can go deeper as it goes wider. And what I mean by that is learning about different church experiences that aren't my own, meeting different Christians, uh, social media is great for that, that have had um, a, a very different upbringing that maybe have never, you know, sat in a contemporary worship service like, yeah. like where I attend church, but have always gone to mass And, you know, if if we follow um, the Catholic news, maybe find out they can't have Latin mass anymore. What's that even, you know, what's that all about? (laughs) So just this, um, this wild 
curiosity awakened in me. And so when I wrote that book at the very end of it, um, there's this really just throw up list of, I want to try this and I want to try that. And I want to find someone who does this and, you know, just, um, almost a bringing to life of all of these, um, questions and, uh, curiosity that, that I have developed as I've learned more and more. And so in shaky ground, I wanted to explore what I had learned in, in that time span. Um, I, what I have learned about different spiritual practices from the Quakers and from the Catholics and from the early church fathers, just um, this, this wide expanse, again, of different Christians who and church traditions that can teach us so much. Um, and so that's what I set out to do in this book. And early on, it had a sort of title, working title of spiritual toolbox. And the idea was these are tools that help us practice our faith, that help us grow in the faith, help us find more and more of Jesus. And with, in conversations with my editor, we realized that when we really need those times or after we've come out of a pandemic quarantine <laughs> that yeah. lasted for 18 months mm -hmm. or whatever, right? Um, those times when we get um, a doctor diagnosis that is super shaky and scary. And so we kind of turned the topic of the book to that idea of why do we need those spiritual practices? And like you said um, in the introduction, I yeah, it's not on the back of the book. I think that's maybe in the Amazon description or something, but um, I think we're at a point in our culture where we're asking if it's even important. Um, yeah. does, it, does it matter to have these spiritual practices? And so I wanted to um, unpack that in the book. Awesome. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the things I connect with you a lot with is your, your interest in um, bridging the gap. And it's something uh, that you do across denominations, um, across different silos that get connected. And so I can very much relate to that. Um, you know, I, I've done that a lot in my own journey. And, and part of it is probably related to who I am and my personality and my upbringing. Um, but also I do have different church experiences that I've grown up with. Um, you know, I, the first church I really remember was, was very charismatic and they spoke in tongues. Um, then I was in the Nazarene church for a while. Um, and then I've been in um, a variety of other things uh, as well. So I've had this variety of experiences, um, not because they sort of chose that in a, any kind of like strategic way, but rather that that's how things unfolded. But it gave me a perspective. Um, I've also done that even in my work. I, I used to have a marketing agency and um, I would befriend other marketing agencies. I didn't see them as competitors, right? And so it's, it's always an interesting dynamic. Um, but I'm curious where that particular part of, uh, for you, like what, if you, how you kind of understand that about yourself and how that has played out in your own journey. Well, much like you said, I think a lot of it is my personality. Um, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a middle child. And if you follow the Enneagram personality types, I'm a nine, um, you know, peacemaker through and yeah. through. So I think that's part of it. Um, pretty averse to conflict. Yeah. <laughs> so there's good and bad in it, right? But um, in particular, 
what I have tried to develop in my books and on social media is this presence that will listen. Yeah. Um, that is honestly curious. Mm. And what surprises me again and again, and I think what really propelled this search is I would be so surprised at how I misunderstood something, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, a prime example, I grew up Southern Baptist. And so there was no way we were going to baptize infants because everyone knows they can't be saved when they're an infant, you know? And so in my, well, probably started probably about mid twenties, but then I had my daughter in my early thirties and the churches where we attended baptized infants Oh, okay. Yeah. And my, my pastor gave current pastor and pastor then gave a very convincing, compelling sermon on what infant baptism is actually symbolizing what, you know, the, the covenant tie that that has made so much sense to me. And so then of course, um, being the curious person that I am, I had to read three or five books on that topic. And so I, I settled that one for myself. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to beat anyone with my Bible over whether or not there's, you know, they do believer baptism or infant baptism. All it showed me was if you study something long enough, and if you actually meet and talk with people who do it differently, it's probably going to make more sense to you than yeah. it did when you were just told, well, we don't do that. Yeah, yeah. So I can't, I can't turn it off now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. Cause I think, and you, you explore this in the book a bit. Um, and it wasn't even like an explicit thing in my, my experience growing up, but, but that whole idea of like, um, like I'll use Catholic church as an example, but it, it very much was looked as at, at the extreme, not even Christian, like as, as yeah. some separate thing. And so, um, and, and even if that was the conclusion, it was, it was very ungenerous in terms of how it was concluded, right? It was very superficial. And so, um, and so now here I am, you know, in 2020 and, um, some of the books that I've read in the last couple of years, um, come from Catholics and they're like some of my favorite books. So what I missed out on, right. By, by sort of excluding that and, and not even in an explicit way, but just in an, uh, organic way. So. Um, so that whole idea of like the the beauty and the and the fruit that comes from the church as a whole, looking at it as a whole, um, it's just so um, it's such a beautiful thing. But where does that where does that tension come from? Where does that um, that us and them uh, play out, or why does that unfold, particularly in the church, which you know seems to be the last place it should play out? Well, it always has been that way. <laughs> That's part of it. Um, as you mentioned in my introduction, I'm also a big fan of church history, mostly because I didn't know any of it. Um, I just finished a book on church in the Middle Ages. Um, yeah. Also, also a portion of that time known as the Dark Ages, and these popes that um, western christianity had were insane (laughs) and i was like well and then and that was like 
I won't get the time quite right. Let's say, um, you know, 1,000, 1,100 is kind of where that book left out, um, AD. And, and then all of that feeds into um, this combination of church and state and how did that work out? And you can see where, oh, the Reformation had so much history behind it. And so then we go from the Reformation and obviously still have never figured out how to get along. Um, and so I would say church history feeds a lot of it. And, you know, I, I think a lot about labels and I will explore this on uh, social media, the various questions that I ask and the way I interact with um, assumptions that, that we make in our labels. I don't know, we're just a labeling people. <laughs> I don't know if that's more prominent in America or if that's just the way humans in general are wired. But I mean, how did I start out? I'm a middle child and I'm a peacemate, you know, <laughs> in Enneagram nine. I mean, we just love, I remember um, when my daughter, she's 14. And when she first discovered personality tests, let's say, I don't know, 10, 11, she like would find everyone she could take. She wanted to know herself, you know, and, yeah. and by knowing yourself from a personality test, you're labeled. Um, and so I think that's a lot of it. I try really hard to drop labels from my, when I look at um, Christianity, just because I, I write often and have settled on the metaphor of Paul um, labeling us as the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I don't go around saying I'm the arm, you know, no, I'm part of the body. And so mm -hmm. um, I think that's part of it too. If we can drop some of those labels and not let them influence us mm -hmm. so much, um, that can help a lot with exploration. Yeah. Um... It's interesting because uh, you talk about the labeling and I do think a lot of labeling is, um, and I'll give an example, is experientially driven. Um, and so when I think about like my, on my dad's side of the family, um, my grandmother um, and my grandfather had a pretty negative experience in the Catholic church. And yeah. um, my great grandmother um, was let's just say there are, there are, there are negative legends about her, um, just in terms of just who she was and how she treated my grandfather and my grandmother. And, and, um, and she was very devout Catholic. There, there's just a lot of experiential tethers there. And I, I think in, from that direction, that's where that came from. And, and I think a lot of people that may have those negative experiences in the Catholic church, um, may broadly apply that, but it's such a large, um, organization that that uh, that but we also kind of live in small bubbles that we think our little experience in this particular catholic church is, is all there is and so we kind of paint with these broad brushes so i don't know is there anything you would add to that or speak to that yeah i want to go back to i mean i can start from here but going back to your original conversation about why we're like this <laughs> um when you look at church history, specifically those time periods that I mentioned, Christians were killing one another. Mm -hmm. And like, simply because of your label, you're not, you're going to baptize a believer, then we're going to hunt you down. Yeah. <laughs> and I, 
I remember early on when I had written my first book, I had a um, pastor friend write me and she said, I feel like your work is going to do a lot of healing across the traditions. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, whoa, that's, that's like a really big work, but I understand what she means now, because if, if that has been planted in our spiritual DNA, if you will, then that does, that does need some healing. Um, you know, if, if I know that, um, Anabaptists, for example, were so terribly tortured, Mm. then the, the conversations that those families would have had and then passed on, I mean, like you, you know, you refer to your grandma and her bad Catholic experience. Well, those, you know, those family stories have been passed down for a long time and they've certainly, um, been wrapped up in our denominational speak as well. And so I think, um, that points to, to part of the problem too, Yeah, you know, which can amaze me because then I think that was 500 years ago, (laughs) but that that's the way it works. Yeah. The tradition, the history behind it, um, perpetuates Mm -hmm. and the healing is multi-generational. It seems. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, now I think kind of to step a little bit further out here on this topic. Um, I believe that we're in an era, um, that what I think of as inter-institutional institutions. So institutions that bridge institutions or people that bridge people or people that bridge institutions that we are sort of in these, um, the tale of two cities sort of thing, like, uh, these, uh, two, two people that are sort of at, at hostility towards each other that are in, that are often caught in a dynamic, a spiraling dynamic that is almost uncontrollable. Like it's, it's almost like my two kids fighting, like they're one is doing one particular thing and the other is doing another particular thing. And, be, and then that spirals into, uh, uncontrollable uh, responses on by their, either of them and neither of them can stop <laughs> themselves. They need intervention which is what mm-hmm. we need. And so I believe that just as a society, particularly in the, in the West and in America, that what we need is these bridges between these institutions, between um, people. And so that's something that you, uh, you have a heart for. And so I'd be curious what you have to say about that, particularly as it relates to, like you've talked a little bit about in the church level, but also society and, and even you know your experience on Twitter, which is one of the things you're doing there. Yeah, I've actually been doing a lot of reading on that myself. It, you know, as in America, as we go through these two and four year political swings and we we get more and more hateful the closer it gets to an election, I, I wonder why. And then I see how much I receive from social media because of my approach to mm-hmm. it. And so I, I do examine that a lot. And I think so much of it is, whether it's in person or whether it's on social media, we have to get back to getting to know one another. Um, I, and what I mean by that is drop the assumptions. Um, you know, I remember my 
history teacher in eighth grade said, you know what they say about assume? And if you, <laughs> yeah. I won't say it online on the air, <laughs> but look it up. Um, so drop the assumptions and see, see behind it, you know, oh, and this can be actually a really fun mental exercise. I think if you see, and Twitter is famous for this. Um, if you see someone make this bold, incredibly, um, biased tweet, you know, usually those are the most popular. That's part of why people do it. But then to, I always step back and think, what has that person encountered in their background to make such a bold statement? Mm -hmm. um, and how can I, rather than say that was stupid, how can I interact with it? And can I find the middle ground here? You know, um, and I'm trying to think of an example. I'm coming up empty at the moment, but rather than react, I try to um, give it some time, give it some thought. And that might be 30 seconds. That might be, you know, I, if I'm really smart, I ask the Holy Spirit <laughs> and sometimes then I don't get to respond at all. Um, but on, only after those, um, only after I've given it some thought, then will I step in and say, well, have you thought of it this way? Or have you, usually it's, have you thought about how, a person who's actually living in what you describe would, would feel whenever they, you know, so again, getting to know one another and remembering that um, when you put something out on social media, hundreds, if not thousands of people see that. And so number one, I want to be a kind human. And number two, I want to represent Christ in the very best possible, you know, way that I can. And that's, that, that's the way I engaged with social media. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, I want to kind of dive in a little deeper mm -hmm. into what, what you're getting at there, which is like, what, why, why do that? Right. Which I think you kind of alluded to at the end there, which is, why should I, why should I, why should you, why should we care to care? Are you asking me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, well, well two, re all, two reasons. Yeah. Number one, um, it's our witness. Uh, ab absolutely. You know, Christians can be seen as the most unloving people in, on these platforms. And Jesus and why was Why does our witness matter? because that's what attracts people to Jesus. And Jesus is the answer for the world today, right? Isn't that, that's a praise song, I think. Um, so yeah, everything for me is, you know, driven to this idea of pointing people to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And if I'm ugly and hateful and dismissive in my responses, they don't have any interest in someone that's representing yeah. Jesus. Um, so that's at the core of it. But I would also say, and maybe this is a bonus that you don't realize at first, I learn so much that yeah. way, you know, because people, I just have developed a reputation and others have too. It's certainly not just me 
you're not going to be allowed to spew the nasty stuff on my on my thread you know um and i will even have people on my behalf step in and say you know that's that's not really the kind of conversations we have here in this space um and and so fostering that idea of getting to know one another um learning from one another has just been um really helpful for me and and I hear all the time um, from others who spend time, uh, you know, in, in, in my threads and on my posts. To kind of tie a few threads together, you know, the, and I'll kind of uh, ask you about the, going back to the assumptions as, as one example. Um, I think when we are making such certain statements, and it, it's not always the case, but I would say a majority of the time, we're presenting ourselves as complete even though we're incomplete. <laughs> and um, and that does two things, which one, it prevents us from learning anything. And two, it creates, um, it fosters antagonism, unnecessary antagonism. And what I mean by that is, I think a lot of people get caught up, um, like when there's something controversial that happens, um, people tend to get caught up in, in what was said, like the content, the specifics. But what I tend to find is that um, the, the, uh, the spirit of which that was driven, like the pride or whatever, it's, it's eliciting a, a reaction and people are actually reacting against that, that, that um, selfishness or pride or whatever it might be and not the content, but, but maybe they don't, they, they don't know how to kind of untether those two things. So they end up being against the content. So if, you know, if someone is for one issue, then I'm against it because of the spirit of which they're they're communicating or driving it. Does that make sense? It does. And I think, um, you know, a, a prime example, uh, we see all the time the two labels, um, conservative Christianity and progressive Christianity. And I think a lot about words, spend a lot of time, you know, getting to the, to the roots of words. And if you look at that word progressive, um, it, it's really just a forward movement, right? In mm -hmm. your um, faith in anything, you know, a, a progressive parenting, progressive, you know, marriage, yeah. whatever you want to call it. We have taken it and it's become a toxic word. Mm -hmm. And for some um, especially if you're a highly conservative Christian, you hear the word progressive Christian. And like you said, to the extreme, you might say, well, they're probably not, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is really bold, um, in my opinion. And further, you're, you've already shut down. Yeah, You're convinced there's not anything that they can teach you. And if you were to try to interact and learn from them they might teach you something wrong yeah <laughs> and and we are very fearful of being of learning something wrong and that's really fascinating um and, and i come and not out of fearful enough and not fearful enough that we might be wrong <laughs> yeah that's not we've already been taught what's right <laughs> you know we didn't learn yeah. it ourselves we've been hand spoon fed what what was right um, and that's certainly the tradition that I came from. Um, and I am still involved enough in that tradition that I'm raising a daughter in it, if you will. I have not 
um, in all of this exploring, I have not radically changed where I go to church or um, the, the people I worship with. Um, I lead a Bible study locally at my church and they will make a statement every now and then that I'm like, <laughs> you know, meaning um, yeah. I, I don't believe that anymore. Or there's so much more to that concept than that one statement that you just made. And so we, we walk through that together, right? And I walk through that all the time with my daughter um, that, that right isn't the most important thing. And we can't be right about everything. He's God, for goodness sake. You know, he's um, so, I would hope he's so much bigger and beyond our yeah. knowing in full. Um, and so, yeah, I think, and I'm asked that question a lot. Uh, you know, are, are you fearful of learning something wrong? You know, of being... And what I find is that as I, as I look at that idea of fear and take it back layer by layer and layer, it, fear is in opposition to trust in God. And so as I have let go of that fear of learning something wrong, of not being right, I have found that I can trust God with my faith. I am secure in him. And so, yeah. and my foundation is laid, right? And that doesn't change. And so that's given me such freedom to explore and to um, try a spiritual practice that, you know, maybe I would have not even considered 20 years yeah. ago. You know, it would have been, for me, it would have been too Catholic, or, um, yeah. you know, something that, uh, weirdo Christians do. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, but if they're going to benefit from it, if there, if there's more of Jesus to be found in that, I'm going to at least read about it, maybe try it. And some of those I've implemented, you know, yeah, yeah. um, I'm not afraid of the process, uh, like I would have been yeah. before. Well, I am reminded of when Peter walks out on the water towards Jesus, because, um, he's, I, I think Christ, Christ is our foundation. And so we move where he moves. Right. And so we move towards him and Peter did that for a moment. Um, and the other disciples stayed in the boat. And so they, uh, they were, what's our security in? Is it in Christ or is it in the boat? Right. And the boat is a pretty secure place. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. but when the storm is bad enough, it, it flips over too, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I know that's the other, a great point. So, yeah. so many um, truths in that story. Yeah, I love that story. The other implication is that mm -hmm. that information is a contagion, right? Like if someone says something that's wrong, it's automatically going to stick to me and I can't get it off. Like almost yeah. like a disgust, like a um, disgust response. And so um, that that implies a couple of things. It implies that and, and I've seen this a lot and I think it's really um, a hard thing to kind of work through, but I, th I think we are horrible at uh, investigating truth. Mm -hmm. And that investigation process, we, we don't know what it is or how to do it. And so in many ways we are dependent on somebody telling us the truth, right? And that kind of gets back to what you said earlier about, well, these are what I've been told is true, right? But how do I right. know it's true? 
Right. And how, how do you personally or your community, even stepping wider, how do you benefit if you go ahead and read things or learn, talk about things that you don't think are true? Mm -hmm. You know, if you pick up, um, I, I remember early on, I read a book. Um, uh, she's written two or three books. Sarah Miles is her name, and she is um, a priest, I believe, I believe, out in California. And she did not grow up in the church, um, a, has a beautiful um, conversion story. And Sarah is um, a lesbian who is married to... Uh, woman yeah and they have a little girl radically different from my small country church in rural missouri right <laughs> yeah. and so as i'm reading sarah uh and you know i mean yes if you want to sit down with sarah and i we don't agree on every point of doctrine <laughs> in christianity i don't agree with everyone on most you know <laughs> on plenty of there's plenty of people i don't agree with on every point of doctrine um but reading that book and those two or three books, I would weep sometimes at her describing coming to the communion table and at what she was learning about the individual members of her church and how they were connecting. Um, what a different experience, you know, that, that. I learned from rather yeah. than I can't read that book, you know, I'd be way too afraid yeah. to read, read that book. So again, just as, and I, it hasn't come up yet. And I'm surprised because all of this requires deep humility. Um, this approach of number one, you do have something to teach me. I know it. And number two, I'm wrong about some things. I know it. Yeah. Um, and that we're not very good at that kind of humble. Um, our society definitely doesn't feed it. Yeah. Um, along with that humility for me has come some deep repentance. You know, I, like you, I, um, had some assumptions that had been handed to me about Catholicism and they've taught me so much. And I, I have dear, dear friendships that I treasure now with Catholic yeah. individuals. And I have had to repent of the yeah. assumptions that I made. And again, humility played a big role in that. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, going back to like your point about conservative and progressive Christians, right? There, there's, there's a shared center there, which is Christianity. <laughs> Um, but I, I think that humility also recognizes that, that they're, that they're also two sides of the same coin. They're, they're mirrors of each other. And, um, and I think that's true in politics as well. Um, the left and the right, um, they, they look, we might look down upon the other side, but, um, that other side is, is us, <laughs> you know? And so, um, uh, we wouldn't want to say that or admit that because we want to villain, we tend to want to villainize the other side. Um, and there's a lot of underlying dynamics that kind of drive that. Um, but I think if we kind of look through that humility and we kind of explore that, we do learn that we grow and that if we sort of set aside, um, for a moment, 
um, for the, the, the for the sake of listening, set aside our paradigm and ex- and and really truly go into theirs to understand it. We might actually, uh, if we've done it well, we'll actually get to the point where we would see what they see as they see it. Um, where we would go, okay, I actually I would agree with them if I if I sort of took on that mantle and and uh, saw it that way. And now we have actually to your, the learning point, we have these two things that we now can actually reconcile and how, how do those reconcile, right? Um, so I think there's a greater um, depth that can be learned, even if at the end of it, we we don't significantly, you know, like you said, you didn't necessarily significantly change your church um, community, but you have just a depth to what you do have and what it might also be lacking which also gives you an opportunity to, to make a difference in your particular silo um, now that you sort of bring the goods from another another land into the, into, into the local. <laughs> it, it makes for some interesting teaching moments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, um, you know, you, you can't, it, there's no sense in me coming in as a teacher blasting away right? You know, like right now I'm exploring the concepts of hell Mm -hmm. as they have, as they were in the Old Testament. What did ancient um, Judaism believe? How did that develop? What New Testament, what, you know, has been given to us in literature? And I'll probably, I might spend the rest of my life studying that. I mean, I don't know that you end a study like that, but um, as a teacher, when I'm sitting before my Bible study group of 15 women, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, because they're at totally different walks in their journey. And some of them have never questioned any, anything about, you know, what they were presented at five is still the image of five years old is still the image of hell that they hold in their mind. Um, And like, I, I go back again to that idea of we're walking that together. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, make them be exactly where I am. I'm also, you know, patient that maybe I can awaken some curiosity in them so that, um, they, they want to study, um, for their own further understanding, but walking in it humbly together, um, is, is the best way to to foster learning for both yes yeah. well and, and i do think you what you said earlier about um couching this whole ex, our, our faith journey but particularly the exploration part of it in our relationship with christ right he's holding us together yeah and i think it's um if we think we're holding ourselves together then we've already lost like step one right so to trust yeah. that christ is holding us and, and I'll kind of use a personal example. Um, I had, a, you know, this is probably in 2012. I had this, um, I kind of went down this road of like facing my, like, what is it that I'm afraid of most? Mm-hmm. And what that, what I came to realize is it was, I was afraid of being corrupted. And that corruption, both physically, mentally, and spiritually. And that ultimately I would become an enemy of God, right? It was sort of the, the, and I would want to be that, right? And that was, that was the fear, the root, root, root fear. And what was so uh, 
well, it was terrifying, but it was also so reassuring because then it was like, wait a second, I have been corrupted. I have been an enemy of God. And yet he still held me. And yet he still pursued me. And I was like, if he did it all these other times, why would he just automatically stop doing that? You know, from now, now that, you know, I'm going to stop doing it. No, he's not. He's going to pursue me to the end. So he's going to pursue me in the way that I need to be pursued in a way that, um, that, that I, I respond. So, um, so that was so, it's such a, like a relief to go, okay, I can completely, uh, screw up in every possible way, which I already did. Um, and he's still there for me. And, Mm -hmm. and then that frees me up. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. What would you add to that? Well, we, last spring, our Bible study group did a study of the book of Jude and it's a second or third verse. It's very early on in the greeting of Jude. He, he says the line, um, Christ Jesus has kept you. He'll keep you. And yeah. so you mentioned, you mentioned the word held. And I remember our women being so captivated by that idea that you're kept. Mm. Um, you, you can't, you know, it, going back to the first title of my book, not all who wander spiritually are lost. You can't be lost again. Um, you're, you're kept by Jesus. And so it, it's, it's an easy statement to ba- to make, but boy, it was a huge difference in my life. I shifted mentally from, I don't want to be wrong to, I want as much of Jesus as I can find in this life. And yeah. beyond, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want anything to keep me from that pursuit of, of Jesus. Yeah. And that was a, that was a major mm. shift. Hmm. Yeah. And it, it's interesting and it kind of tie things into the shaky ground um, topic. You know, I think about kind of this, that story of the storm with the disciples in the boat. So first the disciples are on land, which is very safe and secure. Then they get into the boat and the boat, you feel the storm, right? And they felt it enough to be scared, right? <laughs> so, but it does absorb it. And then there's like this third stage, which is out on the water with, with Jesus, right? And one of the things I was thinking about when I read your book, um, at some point I thought, you know, really what you're telling us is, or what I'm drawing from it, is our life is a, we should live a shaky life because, from the perspective of the boat or the land because our foundation is in Christ, which is means everything else is shaking. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's actually more secure than the flip side of it. Does that make sense? I'm trying to figure out how to articulate it, but. No, it's um, it's taking kind of a different angle of the shaky because parts of the book, I talk about um, things beyond our control that are shaking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like a, a, a divorce um, that mm-hmm. maybe you didn't want. That's shaky. That's brought on by by another person um, or, you know, a, a car accident, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. You know, um, natural disasters, a pandemic. Um, but then there is another kind of shaky that you do choose. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's and, almost like an evolution. Like you, you have to be shooken before you choose shaky. 
Yes. Yeah. You have to be willing. Yeah. Willing to be shook. Um, I, I remember in one of, one of the questions I asked on Twitter, a person responded and said, why not just be comfortable in your church? You know, why, why not just go on Sunday and take your kids to Sunday school and give some groceries to the food pantry through your church? You know, why, why explore like this? And I think the number one reason I would give for that is because we can't find all of God and Jesus in one church experience. Um, we, we can be safe and comfortable there, kind of. I, I would probably <laughs> even <a> argue <laughs> that point. Yes, because um, I, can't, I can't tell you how many times I, I have, I think last count, I've been in um, nine different churches just because of moves and, um, you know, childhood and what have you. And there's always these utopian times where you're like, this is perfect. I can't believe he, he's my pastor and I can't believe I get to teach this class, you know, whatever, whatever you have made perfect and it never lasts. Right. <laughs> um, so, and that's certainly, uh, in the very opening of the book, I talk about beginnings and how they usually do seem pretty perfect, right? The first six days of Genesis one, oh, seven days, I'm sorry, the day of rest is also nice. <laughs> um, but if you just read Genesis one and Genesis two, beginnings are perfect. But there's always going to be, you know, a, um, and so, yeah, even in those times that we choose to be shaken, there's going to be good and bad in that but the pursuit is worth it. Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, I, I would maybe phrase what you said, like in the sense of the pursuit of Christ is what drives us to, um, to push those boundaries mm -hmm. and, um, and, 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 and not in a sense to create, <clears throat> to create the division, but rather to create, to pursue completion, more completion, more to be more complete, more, fulfilled or I don't know the right word, but. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we can, um, I don't know that you can settle in one church and receive a, a full truth, if you will. And what I mean by that is it's, you know, it's going to have its faults it's going to have its um statements that it says mm -hmm. you know are absolutely true and even at focus because they like have a, an a experience priority. yes yeah. yeah yeah so it's it's almost a false assurance um yeah. that you have created if you're never willing to kind of shake things up yeah, I mean, I, I there's one church I we were a part of that I loved. It was very diverse. I mean, it, 100 nations were represented there. It was, it was, um, but it was part of their core um, um, vision, and so that's they made it. They made it happen. And um, uh, another one of the things that they committed to was was missions, uh, global missions. And they, from the very beginning, they committed 20 percent of their budget to missions. Wow. And um, there are other churches that don't do that, right? And so. 
if that's like a sticking point, like it's, it's there, are, I think to see the broader picture, and, and this is something you say in the book that I, that I did appreciate, which is, um, how did you say it? Uh, did I write this down? Um, essentially, um, if you're feeling like there's something missing from the denomination, then to go broader, to, to explore the others and um, go wider, I think is what you said. And, yeah. um, and that's what I tell people, like if they're kind of complaining about this or that. And I said, well, actually there's this other church I know of that does that. Maybe you should check that out, you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, on the flip side, I think there's also times, I know there's one church that we went to for several years and I, I felt like God was leading me to commit to this church for this season, um, no strings attached. Hey, whatever happens, happens. Like you're committed to the church, whether they say what you like or they don't, whether they do wow. uh, what, what they shouldn't, like it's a commitment. Mm -hmm. And so um, so there's there's those seasons too, right? Versus a consumeristic kind of approach to church, which is, you know, I'll go there as long as they're serving me or they're giving me what I want. And um, versus a mutual, I think it needs to be mutual, it has to be a mutual uh, center, um, you know, to both, both parties are, are pursuing the good together and, and not at the cost of one or the other, um, ideally. So, um, so yeah, it's, 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 uh, interesting, but I, I think this idea though is, and, and this is another, uh, tension point, which is when we're shaken and we kind of sort of reorganize, re regroup, um, and re go deeper with our relationship with Christ in that process just who we are and what we think and how we act pushes on other people around us. It shakes them <laughs> just because now you, you see, you see something you didn't see before, but they don't see it. And now there's a clash, right? Cause you bring it up and then they're like, maybe they're dismissive or maybe they don't want to hear it, or maybe they just aren't understanding. So now there's, now there's, there's a sort of a shaking. Um, so I wanted to pull in, there's this quote that I, uh, from CS Lewis to kind of just, kind of set the stage of this um this idea um this is from a grief observed and so c.s lewis says my idea of god is not a divine idea it has to be shattered time after time he shatters it himself he is the great iconoclast could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of its presence and so that kind of i think of that you know as related to our role and being the hands and feet of christ but also in how the hands and feet of Christ meet us. <laughs> so what, what, uh, when you hear that, when you read that quote, what, what comes to mind for you? I love, I love that quote. When you sent me that, um, you know, as, as part of the idea of what we might talk about today, uh, it, it really resonated. And, you know, that word shatter kind of has a negative connotation, right? Like mm -hmm. shatter is normally like a glass fell to the ground and shattered, right? Broke. Um, and so I like that he chose that word because what if shattering isn't bad? What, you know, what if mm -hmm. shattering um, in this case uh, from God is actually intentional yeah. and why would he do that? Um, and, and then I think of, you know, as you were, talking, I was thinking through different, um, Bible characters and how much unknown is in their life. That's the whole point mm -hmm. of Hebrews 11, right? All of these things were promised to them and they didn't see them in their completion. Um, 
and boy, were their worlds shattered. You know, Abraham moves from his hometown and goes a little ways. And then Abraham really moves, you know, to where God had him. And then God says to Abraham, you know, let's sacrifice Isaac. Um, And oh, what are we going to do with Ishmael? You know, shatter, shatter, (laughs) shatter. Um, And shaky, 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 right? So I guess there's, uh, there's some correlation there for sure. And what if we grew to be okay yeah. with that? You know, um, whether it's of our own doing or not. Uh, a- and certainly I wouldn't say God causes all of that shattering either. Um, you know, that gets into the whole other discussion yeah. about. Um, well, what- the implication here is the, the first part, which is my idea of God is not a divine idea. And I think the implication there with the shattering and even maybe the shaking to some degree is um, if I build this facade that's not true, um, it's me that has subjected myself to the inevitable shattering of that thing, right? Yeah, yeah. The role we play in it, for sure. Yeah. So it's... um, I think that's the interesting thing. The uh, uh, principle here or a aspect of it is, am I pursuing God and truth and conforming myself to it? Or am I trying to form God in my image? Right? And that's kind of part of what I also get from that first point. My idea of God is not a divine idea because we we certainly think it is. My my idea of God is, is a divine idea. And that's why you're wrong. And that's why I should be antagonistic towards you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know where the line is between that and like maybe a legitimate heresy. Uh, how would you sort of tether those out? <laughs> right, <laughs> and I, I don't get a, I don't get asked that directly the word heresy necessarily, but I do um, I do get asked often. You know h- how far does this go? You know um, how extreme can someone be on the other side, and you're still part of the body of Christ. And I think that it takes us back certainly to the idea of Captain Jesus, right? I mean, all of us who are Captain Jesus have some wrong doctrine. We just do because we're beyond um, our ability to fully understand God and, and his ways. But that idea of him, um, being divine does almost point to a, he has to be unchanging, you know, he can't be, but he's a, but he's a living God and Jesus and the, you know, the spirit are still. And so, um, I, yeah, I like the idea that it creates, um, that it's almost more, n- not that Christ is changing, but our understanding of him mm-hmm. certainly, you know, needs to have room to, to change and to develop and to deepen. Um, yeah. and I, I think the quote gets to that point. Yeah. And, um, and you, uh, on, uh, page 14, let's see, I, I underlined, uh, oh, okay. You may, but maybe we could assuage our anxiety, our deep seated fears. If we regularly determined we would cling to our savior, maybe the lesson we need to internalize deeply is that we live in a fallen world. It is Christ alone who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Love that verse. Yeah. 
I've spent some time, um, and I, I don't know that I've landed on, um, you know, John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And we know that that is um, pointing to the personhood of Jesus Christ. But then as um, an evangelical, I have been taught um, that the, the word of God is the Bible. And both are true. God, God's word is the Bible um, handed down to us through, through tradition and through the, the penmanship of man, um, spirit-led. Mm -hmm. but, but Jesus is the word and the word was with God. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and so figuring out um, how to hold those two to yeah without um in in my mind and i think i've certainly experienced this across um different church traditions we hold those things differently sometimes you know if you are in a church who is more tradition driven um mm -hmm. and more tied to our church history then it seemed, especially like I'm thinking now of the Orthodox tradition, um, it, they, they would hold Jesus as the word in a different mm -hmm. way than evangelicals have taught me to hold mm -hmm. the word of God, yeah. you know, um, maybe well, I, that's. I, yeah. I mean, I would maybe simplify it for myself and say, well, I love the scriptures, but I love Jesus more. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and I, I think we're supposed to, and I'm not sure I always have. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. It's hard to distinguish the two, especially if we have a, we don't have a direct relationship with Christ or if it's a limited one. Well, and at I the mean, end of the day, the Bible, in my opinion, is still the best way to know God and, yeah. and Jesus. It, it is the most, it has the most information for yeah. us to do that yes but i do um, i do wonder about the early christians like man if they had a fragment mm -hmm. they might have had like yeah. one one scripture and that's all they had to had and 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 so that's a whole different like we have an abundance of riches in that sense and yes and that's beautiful some would cool. say we yeah yeah <laughs> so i know um i remember uh reading about the individuals who, um, like again, in the middle ages, many were illiterate. And so the scripture they heard was on, you know, Sunday morning, what the priest would read, um, in mass. And I think, you know, obviously still able to have a faith without what we have today, mm -hmm. you know, being able to go to any app and like, study yourself to death looking up you know every greek word of a bible verse etc cetera, etc cetera. um and what's the right you know what's what's the right balance and where does jesus as the word fit into that combination yeah um and yeah. constant and constantly assessing that yeah and i think i think the order of subordination matters because you know the there's the Christian tradition. And I, I think when the Reformation came, it was essentially pushing back that tr the tradition of Christianity had become um, the superior. Mm -hmm. And then, but, but in some ways I wonder if, if um, 
the Reformation, at least how it's played out, simply switched out tradition with scriptures, whereas both should be subordinate mm. to the word of Christ. Um, yeah, good point. I, I like to look too at the flip side of the Reformation. It's an interesting study to read um, the reforms that happened within the Catholic Church during that time uh, and kind of a setting yeah. it right there yeah. too, if you will. Yeah, I do wonder um, what was uh, was an external divorce. Um, did it did it miss the opportunity for the internal rectification? And some of that happened, anyways. To your point, um, but yeah. it, perhaps there was a pathway that it didn't have to to lead to that that great divorce. Yes, over and, and, and over in fact, in, in fact, I, if I'm miss, if, unless I'm a sick, and I even think Martin Luther may have stated something like that. He never intended to. Speak to split the church or, or something like that, but I don't remember the specifics. Yeah. So I kind of want to introduce this, this, this psychological concept, uh, this researched idea, what's called constructive development theory. And just to kind of give uh, the audience a little bit of uh, a survey of what, whatever this is that I'm talking about. Um, there's been this research done over the last uh hundred years or so that's uh, um, a combination of people, but it's sort of been um, compiled by uh, Keith, uh, or sorry, um, Robert Keegan. And um, what it is, is that um, has, that there are these sort of five stages of maturity that we go through in our, in our life. And the first three stages, the first is kind of this perception stage where we're impulsive. This is a child that, um, you know, they cry, they get food. Um, they think three pennies is more than one quarter because it's, there's more of them. They, they see a plane in the sky and they literally think it's an inch long. You know, <laughs> it's this very kind of fantastical way of thinking. We end up moving, you know, usually around this, the, uh, the, the junior high era um, into this level to this um, self-sovereign stage. We see rules in law, black and white, win and lose. Um, it's about my agenda. Um, that's why middle school can be so difficult raising children. <laughs> um, eventually we move into this, this third stage, which is, um, uh, about relationships, peers and mentors, ideologies, cultures, circumstances. Um, we sort of, um, are shaped by these, these things, um, and, and who we are and how we behave and what we act and how we see ourselves and how we're judged. It's very outside oriented in, so we're, 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 we're anchored by an outside source. And then we shift some point in, in our life. We shift from this level three to level four. Um, and I'll, um, I'll make one comment for level two. There's actually a large, you know, I mean, about 10 to 15% of the population that never moves beyond level two. So think of a middle schooler that stays that as an adult. And that's, uh, that's what you get. The, the level four is you go move into the self-authored level four and five are this understanding from the inside out. So we're self-authored. We have our own paradigm where we've internalized the difference between like a stage three and four is we might have similar beliefs, but those beliefs are now our own. We've, we've, we've learned why we believe them and we've embraced them as our own. And then the level five is a higher level integrated order, um, which is higher values oriented and, and focused. It's called self-transforming in, in, in the, in the literature. Well, the, I want to kind of, there's this interesting shift from level three to level four. When we go from, we kind of have this moment 
um, somewhere, this is usually kind of thought of as like the midlife crisis or the mid midlife transition, um, which can turn into a crisis, but we shift from what they told me growing up or what someone, what they said Christianity was, it turns out it didn't prepare me for the crises, the storms, the challenges, the, the shaky ground that I'm now facing. And, um, and it's very destabilizing. And, um, and so I'm curious, you know, I'm curious from your point of view, like what you think about this concept as it relates to your idea of shaky ground and also at a kind of a broader level like when you think about some of these concepts of human development as they relate to um as they relate to like this stance between um the truth that we can find in scripture and then the truth that we can find through nature and, 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 and scientific discovery like this. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on those. And, um, and, and there are some interesting parallels to those. So for example, um, one of the ways that you move through these stages and as we get uh, more mature is, is through reflection of our past and understanding, you know, what happened, why it happened, why we did what we did and, and reflecting on those and leaning into conflict and leaning into those things. And when you read a lot of like what Apostle Paul writes or James, it, it actually lines up very well in terms of, uh, um, you know, uh, how we actually grow as humans. There's a, there's actually a, a practical component to that. So anyway, I'm throwing that out there as you, when, when I read the book, I was like, oh, okay, this, this is a, this shaky ground idea is kind of, it makes me think of this um, psychological theory that explains how we, we go through these stages of transition and shaky ground. So I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's it's fascinating theory for sure. And as I was, you had sent me some material ahead of time so that that question didn't just come <laughs> flying at me. So thank you for that. Um, and as I was listening um, to the YouTube clips that you sent me on this idea, I thought of my daughter mm. a lot. Because like I say, 14. So we've just come out of middle school. Um, she's an only child, uh, some would say an old soul. And so I, I think maybe she's progressing a little, um, faster than some, um, it, and partly because she has a mom who explores things spiritually, yeah, yeah. um, for better or worse. And so I thought, um, it, how tight is this mm -hmm. to age? And we kind of, you know, go back and forth, um, or maybe we're more advanced in certain areas of our thinking, um, than others. So all of that plays into it too. Um, but I think it, the term deconstruction is big right now in Christianity, right? That idea of um, tearing it all down so that we can um, build it mm -hmm. all up again. And I went through this process in a little softer way, yeah. I guess. Um, I certainly remember, um, you know, the, the relationships and the outside oriented influence. And I think that's where the deconstruction happens. And for me, that's where I just began to realize things aren't as black and white as you think. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of gray area. And whenever we hit that point, whatever age you are, um, it, 
you can decide, I think, to revert back if that feels safer. Um, you can decide to uh, move forward, um, but you can't stay there. You know, li- life's too complex for that. You can't, you can't just have that outside um, influence and not be affected by it one way or the other. And so for me, that's what I, I remember I took a humanities class in my sophomore year of college. It was essentially philosophy. Sometimes colleges will call it that too, a philosophy class. And I was really scared um, because I was afraid I would um, read something that would upset what these relationships up to that time had taught me. Mm. And Instead, what it did was cause me to reflect. I love that idea that you mentioned of making your faith your own. I think that's so much of what we're doing, whether that's um, radically, uh, you know, a bomb blowing off or whether it's this slow Mm -hmm. but sure process of what, you know, I love the word sanctification. Um, If that's just the, the way that our faith is moving forward. And I think that's such a crucial time, um, that examination of the inside out. And I really think, um, you know, if you just stay there, it's okay because at least you're getting to know yourself and at least you're understanding where you fit in the greater church community and hopefully, you know, the wider body of Christ, um, but then how interesting that there is this higher level integrated yeah. order. Um, and, and, and there's I, a, uh, in, in the book, one of the books I, I read on the topic is by Keith Eigel, Dr. Keith Eigel. And he talks about level five and he mentions when Jesus talks about grace and truth, which seem like these competing values, but he's actually integrating them together in a higher form. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I read a book a couple years back, um, Jen Pollock Michael, uh, Surprised by Paradox. Mm. And the whole that's the whole concept of the book, which is it, grace or truth? Well, yeah. w- what if those get meshed um, together? And I think uh, that can be really frustrating with people. And I think that's probably where you have to drop your right. You know, I think sometimes for a lot of people, that's what would happen at like a seminary level. Cause yeah. I know I've asked a lot of people, um, pastors and professors and individuals who have gone through seminary. Usually it is, um, you know, like, a uh, Southern Baptist theological seminary. Well, you're obviously going to be taught what Southern Baptists believe, mm-hmm. but higher education seminary teaching should also be about studying what Christianity believes and what other, you know, and so my question to them is always, how can you be so educated and have spent so much time in this higher level and still be just one? Yeah. (laughs) You know, because again, the complexities grow as you um, continue to consider the different, uh, doctrines, theological topics, et cetera. And I think I understand that better now. And it goes back to that idea of, I know intellectually and spiritually a lot more than I did 
five, 10 years ago, but still I'm very grounded in a local church. Yeah. You know, um, and I think both are important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, sanctification and, and I kind of think of an overlay lays in this process in some ways. Um, and, and it's funny you mentioned deconstruction because I actually have thought about writing an, an article about deconstruction at using this framework, partially with, with the idea or the, um, the focus of like, Hey, we are constantly through our life deconstructing and reconstructing. And, um, and so don't be afraid of it, like embrace it. And if you, and in fact, if you do embrace it, and, and that's kind of one of the things and some of what I've read is, um, with Keith particularly, he says, well, if, if you actually resist it, that's when a midlife transition becomes a midlife crisis, right? Is because you are not recognizing or acknowledging that and then embracing it. And so we, these different stages and sort of, uh, sub stages within them. But I think the other big thing that comes to mind, uh, just as I hear you is, and as, as I premise it with that statement is that, um, we have to meet people where they are in the terms of what is shaking them at the level they're being shaken. And so someone in a level, this second self-sovereign stage, what shakes them is very different than what shakes someone at stage three or four or five, right? And, mm-hmm. and so that requires different responses to different people at different points in their journey. And perhaps sometimes we're too universal in our um, prescription, diagnosis and prescription. I don't know. What do you think about that? Great. I think it's great thoughts. Yeah. And I think, again, um, what a humble posture to take. What a respectful, kind way of interacting with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think... The churches that I have known, I won't speak on behalf of all the churches, the churches I have known have not been the best at giving us the tools Mm. to navigate through these stages. Um, We're we're taken by great surprise when some of these stages happen. I'm a big, big advocate for deep discipleship. Um, which as just an example is really hard to do in a mega church of 20,000 people. Um, and so, you know, I, I mentioned, I've, I've been a longtime Bible teacher. Um, and really this, this work of church unity, um, this, this idea of doing away with some of our labels and getting to know one another is also a deep, long work. Um, but I believe with all my heart, it will help us travel through these easier, not easier, um, with less surprise. Um, and I guess easier, what I mean by easier is we know it's coming. We know that's part of the process. Um, we have people in our lives that we trust to walk with us through mm-hmm. those steps and like you said, just, just to say to somebody deconstruction, whatever you want to call it is normal. It's, it's very much a part of the process, um, part of the faith journey that, that we're going to be on. And I, I hope 
moving forward, we can do a better job of equipping people and letting them know that. And that's so much of the purpose of this book. You know, like I said earlier, I, you know, I think, oh gosh, if I made a list of how many spiritual practices are in here, what are there? 50? I don't know. But if you take two or three of them and implement them in your, in your life and allow that deep work to happen, that's enough. You know, that, that, um, help these transitions between the five um, places in life go smoother. Yeah, and, and I think that's you know that that's the point of spiritual practices. That's um, that's what Christ intended um, for us to find among one another. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think um, yeah, and the other thing that comes to mind too is. we have something to even if we're at like let's say i'm at level three and you're in I'm, my child's in the early stage of level two there's something i have to learn from them oh for sure for sure right? oh my gracious and there's something yes, they have yeah. to learn from me even though so i, I don't see it as a um as a, a superiority thing but rather um just an understanding thing that allows us to meet each other where we are but also it does it, it does uh, in fact, the humility we might need or need to learn might come from dealing with our uh, our middle school child. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or going and volunteering in your children's ministry and, yeah. and realizing that individuals that are just in the perception stage have so much yeah. to offer and teach us. Oh, yeah. Us. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, there's something um, very uh, precious and joyful that comes from that. And it's also yeah. something that, um, you know, for myself, uh, just as a, sim a simple example, I would say in the last um, few years, uh, rediscovering play, right, and imagination and, and fantasy yeah. and that kind of thing, and and yeah. they're the they're the ones to go to for figuring that out, right? If we've lost it, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, gosh, that in itself is a humbling thought because, you know, our our tendency would be. I want to be at five, you know, five is the highest number. That's, yeah. that's my goal. You know, we set goals. <laughs> I want to achieve five. Does, does God love us any more or less if we're at five or one? No, you know, it's the, yeah, it's the same. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I think that's good. Just a good reminder. Um, so I know we need to start landing the plane here. I, I would like to, uh, you know, reading your book, you, you talk about a lot of different practices, which I'll let people go uh, read it to explore more of those. But you did seem to explore the Sabbath a whole lot. So I'd be curious uh, what you have to say about the Sabbath. Um, and uh, if you have anything to add uh, or explore on that topic. Yeah, I think the reason why the Sabbath would come up so much is because it ties so naturally to so many spiritual practices, yeah. right? Um, I, I opened the first section of the book is, um, if I remember correctly, six chapters on silence. Yeah. Well, that whole idea of rest and Sabbath um, is going to require some silence, uh, move from silence into prayer. And certainly the other, you know, another component of sabbath is interaction with god 
right. And making that intentional time with God, which prayer does. Um, so yeah, I'm always fascinated to hear, um, the themes that people see, you know, in a book and it's just like a sermon, you know, how sometimes a pastor will give a sermon and afterwards people will come up and they'll be like, oh man, you spoke right to me, you know, with that one line and the pastor's like, I don't even remember saying that line, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, so yeah, how interesting that you saw, um, Sabbath play out, but you know, um, so much of my heart is in continued involvement in the church. Yeah. Um, capital C big, I call it big C church often. Um, whatever that looks like, um, if, if you have been wounded by the evangelical church, which many, many have, um, I, I would encourage, you know, going and spending time with the Quakers, uh, sitting in their silence because the Quakers, um, church service, uh, is un, an un, unprogrammed church service is 60 minutes of silence. <laughs> wow. Yeah, is yeah. that different? Um, and so, uh, I think that's probably why that concept of Sabbath comes through so strong because it's such a church, mm. um, at, well, yeah. certainly one that we borrowed from Judea or been handed yeah. to well, Judaism, you- but a biblical, um, concept yeah. for sure. Well, and I think that's interesting that you say that because the implicit, um, the, in terms of the silence um, with the Sabbath, because I think you even mentioned this in the book, that uh, like on church, in church, I don't, when we go to church on mm-hmm. Sunday, we don't actually practice uh, the silence as part of uh, part of a church service. At least most churches don't or not very often if they do. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that, that's interesting. But I, I almost think of, you know, now that you say that, I also almost think of like the Sabbath as a day is like a day of silence for the week. And, and when I mean that, I, I mean it probably more symbolically than I do literally in the sense that like, you know, it's a si- it's silence of our work. It's silence of these things we sort of cut off. I kind of think of the Sabbath as like the sanctuary day to um, to sort of keep the horde of, the, of reality at bay, you know? <laughs> and yeah. um and it's sort of this uh, symbolic silence to that, um, this moment of silence as, as we sort of, before we go back into, into the, into the um, emergency room of life. Yeah, yeah. Well, and if you, you know, probably one of the best synonyms to describe the word Sabbath is that idea of rest, divine yeah. rest, holy rest, you know, um, and, and throughout the spiritual practices are definitely offering that um, so yeah, I can, I can see that overall theme of Sabbath playing through. Yeah. So I, well, that's a good point. Like you could almost, uh, I guess if you thought, you thought of these, I mean, I don't know if this is too broad, but like you mentioned earlier, like practices of Sabbath. Um, so you've got silence and prayer. And I know I was, th- I was yeah. doing the same thing. I was thinking through the, uh, yeah, the table of contents to, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I guess the other thing I would throw out there, this is kind of just uh, when I was growing up, um, just kind of the reading the Bible and and getting a lot out of it. I think when I was younger, I had a hard time. You know, that may have been because I was at a shallower level in my maturity, but I would hear adults talk about the depth of the Bible and and just how much it connected to them and all of this kind of, they would kind of expand in that direction. And I would be like, I want that. And then I would go read it and it wasn't, wasn't giving me that. <laughs> and then life's experience kind of 
it made it when I went back to the scriptures with that, then I, I saw that depth, but no one had, no one had told me that's how it works. Right. Like, and, and so I'd be curious what you have to say to that. I, that concept and that, that progression and, and, um, and how you, I don't know if you do any kind of uh, teaching for, for, for younger folks, but if, if that tends to be a, a common grievance or not, and how you, uh, how you expand or elaborate on that. It's kind of like another example is I always wanted, they always talked about like accountability partners and mentoring as like, Oh, I want that. But then they never actually did anything to help me figure that out. <laughs> so yeah, that was, yeah. those were just some, to your point earlier, like some of the things that my church is lacking, they, they certainly painted the vision, but they didn't give me the tools. And so I think your book does that, but I'd be curious what you would say to say to that. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of that idea of I'll just use a funny example. It's probably inappropriate, but um, in a Simpsons movie, (laughs) um, Homer Simpson is in, in church and he and his family have gone to church and, you know, a couple of funny little Simpson type remarks are made in that process, but they're sitting there and um, the grandfather ends up like talking in tongues and having, you know, this moment kind of seizure like thing. And Marge leans over and is like, Homer, do something. And he picks up the Bible that's in the uh, back of the pew and starts flipping through it. And he's (laughs) like, this thing doesn't have any answers. (laughs) So um, I think um, without uh, time and definitely, you know, some teaching along the way, et cetera, the Bible can, and to a four-year-old, you know, my gracious, who's, who's just starting to read, um, I think the Bible can have that kind of, um, well, that didn't work, <laughs> you know, and I mean, we definitely live in a society where we think if we can't, you know, pick it up and immediately understand it, then it might not be a worthy pursuit. And I think as you were talking, I was thinking of new believers, um, who are adults, you know, mm-hmm. and how, how are they, um, approaching scripture. Um, and I think for me that my advice to someone who feels that way, certainly my advice to my daughter, as she has, you know, been, been reading scripture for the first time and, you know, just, just wanted to purchase a new Bible, couldn't get to the bookstore fast enough, you know, on her behalf, that kind of thing. Um, it's again, taking it wider, you know, the more I realized that, um, the, the Bible is the story of God's that starts in Genesis and has threads that continue all the way through. And it's an eternal story that even beyond the scope of the Bible, we're still living in, um, you know, into eternity. That, that was huge for me. Um, and I actually read the Bible that way now. I read the Bible chronologically every year um, to see that story. And you don't have to do that. That doesn't necessarily have to be a part of your daily discipline. But any any book that you could grab, any, um, you know, I, I even remember, um, I think it was in college. No, I think I was in my twenties. I was already out of college. This gentleman came to our church on a Sunday night and he had this whole presentation prepared of the story of the Bible. 
and he didn't read from scripture. He just told it, you know, in the beginning there was Adam and Eve and he just told the whole story. The more we can realize that um, if we just open the book and we read Hosea, whoo, that'd be a place to start um, without understanding where Hosea fits into the greater story and into the mm. narrative um, of what God was doing. It's going to be um, daunting. And I have to your question for years, I taught our children at church also um, starting at kindergarten up to, I think probably the highest that I've gone is, you know, fifth or sixth grade. So those, um, young children years and getting my, my primary concern over the years of developing a teaching method for them was getting their hands on the Bible and making sure that they knew where the table of contents was so that someday as an adult, they're not like, well, I don't have it memorized. I have no idea where the book of Hosea is, you know, so, and not so much, um, regurgitation, you know, scripture memorization and, you know, uh, pieces of that are important too, certainly, but overall picture, what I really, really wanted to hand to them was it's God's story. And I want you to tangibly touch it and flip through it. Um, you know, we, we would read scripture starting in first and second grade, and it might take them 10 minutes <laughs> to read a couple mm -hmm. of verses because their reading is so um, choppy still at that age. But I always wanted it to be, to be tied to you. You can hold the Bible and you can find these yeah. books. And this is a gift to you um, mm -hmm. to help you know God. And so yeah. at its core, um, that's what we would move towards. And then hopefully awaken a curiosity and a need for the spiritual yeah. food that is provided within. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, you might appreciate this story. Um, I had this student Bible I, that I loved growing up and, mm -hmm. and I, I read it and highlighted stuff in it. And I didn't really even remember doing that, but um, probably like 2014 or so went through this kind of crazy uh, providential experience, but I ended up giving this Bible to somebody and, um, and later they were like, man, I can't believe you highlighted this thing and that thing. This is like exactly what I needed to hear uh -huh. and read. And it was just really cool. Like who knows you know, what was going on there, but I was this active participant in whatever God was doing and he mm -hmm. could see what was going to happen later that I didn't even, I didn't even know. And again, going back then to that concept of, you know, can, can someone who doesn't know much about the Bible, a new believer, a four-year-old have something to teach me? Yeah. 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 All day, all day. Uh, yeah. That's a good point. In fact, yeah. they might. And that was the other lesson I learned in that particular instance was that I was overcomplicating things. And, um, you know, <laughs> I love to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was getting all tangled up and overcomplicated and it's a lot simpler than, um, than I was making it out. Yeah. So maybe that's so, why we're told to have a childlike faith, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So mere Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, uh, we've talked about a lot. Um, there's a lot we haven't talked about. So people can certainly go get your book, Shaky Ground. Um, what else, anything else you want to 
hit on um, before we wrap up and you tell everyone how to go get this book? Um, I, you know, you asked me before um, we went on the air, just in our, our brief hello before we started, um, what the purpose was for the book. Um, and I, I told you then, and I think, you know, anyone that finds me on social media will quickly see this is kind of my purpose there too. I, I just want to start conversations. I think a lot of um, the things presented in this book we're not talking about, um, you know, to the big picture of church unity, um, it's, it's not high on everyone's list um, of topics necessarily, um, down to the, the small things of why is an evangelical church never silent, <laughs> you know, and I do, I, I talk, um, you know, I just tell a story in the book about how I, I get to church and there's praise and worship music playing in the lobby and the sanctuary. And then about two minutes to there's a recorded voice that says, we'll begin the service in two minutes, more music. And then we start, we sing songs. Um, if the pastor prays, usually there's music behind it. And I jokingly say, you know, if, um, if there is silence, it's because someone missed their cue and they're going to hear about it on Monday morning. It's a right? problem. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And so um, my hope with this book in closing is that it will start conversations. Um, not that you walk away thinking, okay, I got to do these, you know, 10 things that she mentioned in order to be a Christian, but um, how, how could the things presented in this book help Number one, you be a better Christian, and number two, your contribution to the greater body of Christ. Yeah, be bigger and better. Um, yeah, that's, no, that's oh, that's that, a good good example. Real quickly on that, um, the liturgy thing. I had a I met, I went to this uh, event with an author a friend of mine in Colorado Springs, and we had this meeting with some of the people that went to the church. And one of the ladies was complaining about the fact that the church didn't do liturgy, and she loved to write liturgy. And I, I told her, I said, well, why don't you go to them with your liturgy and say, hey, let's do something about this. And I and I think she said, oh, I'd never thought about that. And so I think sometimes if we just share what we have, sometimes that can be the solution. And um, and sometimes we care about certain practices more than others. And that's a good thing because some people need to lead those things. So anyway, that was just a little thing that came up when you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Shit. yeah. Go forth and come back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what else? I think that's about it. Um, I I would encourage um, anyone that does does read it. I keep uh, my email very open, my private messages very open, um, my public tweets very open. So would love to hear um, your your thoughts and feedback as you process what's presented in the book. Um, I often every now and then. Um, there will be someone on Twitter that'll find me and they'll say, you know, oh, are you X, Y, Z tradition? And I'm like, you know, no, I'm not or whatever. And they're like, oh, okay, unfollow. <laughs> and I'm uh, like, okay. how can we have a conversation if you leave the conversation? You know, so um, maybe so you again, need to premise just, it, preface it with, are you going to leave me if I answer that? <laughs> yeah, really, really. Is there a wrong answer here? Traces of Faith is my blog name. Still, I, I don't okay. write as much there, but um, tracesoffaith.com is that address. And then my Facebook and Instagram are Traces of Faith blog. That's the okay. handle. And on Twitter, I'm Traces of Faith. 
tracesoffaith.com for the website, which has the links to the other ones too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get your book. She's got two books, Shaky Ground and All Who Wander Are Lost. Those are both on Amazon and probably everywhere else you might want to buy them, right? Yep. Yep. I even found me on Target. I was so excited. Oh, cool. That's exciting. <laughs> I know. I felt like I'd arrived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have arrived. Um, any Anything else you want to say before, to close us out? No, I think we're good. I so appreciate your, um, both conversations I've had with you now are uh, at a deep level. Um, I, you know, and I think, um, it, it's funny how it, faith has to be a spiritual thing, but it's also an intellectual thing. And and you, again, finding that balance. Um, so I, I feel like both times we've kind of done a good job of that. You know, you can dive in the deeper waters, but realizing that, um, spirituality is also a, uh, a heart issue and a, um, a, a tangible thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, that's a good point. It's, I think there's something to like being prepared and thinking about it and, and having a plan and then sort of holding it open to wherever yeah. it might actually go in, in reality. So um, the dance between, between the unknown and the known. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your life with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Share Life. For additional stories and systems to live better and work smarter, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. We look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of Share Life.